Hey, miserable bitches! We are back with another episode of Misery Manor. My name is Cody. My name is Emily. And before we get started, make sure you leave your manners at the door. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen of the world. Of the world. Of the world. We actually did get an email that, did we already say this? That we are one of the number one true crime podcasts in the Philippines. Oh, yeah. Did we we say that? No. Which I thought was cool, but very random. But hello, Philippines. Hey, guys. (laughs) Um, Oh, my God. I've been dying to tell you this. And I saved it for this, but I met somebody this weekend, and you know who this person is, that is possessed by owls. Like, you know this person. I do? Yes. Mouth are to me. No, like, you know this person. Who? <gasps> is it you? <gasps> Stop. No, you said who, and I'm making a joke. Like, who? You're the owl. <laughs> you were supposed to say who, and then I was like, it's you. Oh my god, I hate you. <laughs> you said, is it you? Yep, it's me, baby. <laughs> I'm the person. Well, anyways, that joke didn't land, but one thing that did land <laughs> is... Uh, let's give a shout out to our new Patreons. We have Melody. Hello, Melody. And that's Melody with an I, which is a beautiful name. Oh, yeah. And I sent your stuff. You should have... Uh, I think Cody ordered your shirt already. Yeah, I was going to say, she picked the top tier, which is $20. So you are going to be getting not only enamel pins in the mail, a lovely card, a lovely pictures and stickers, but we're also going to be mailing you the t-shirt that you wanted because you are the top tier. So claps and snaps Snaps. for you, honey. Our next one is Brian. Thank you so much. You did not pick the 21, but that's fine. (laughs) That is fine. We welcome everybody. Honestly, anything, anything that you donate, we take and we really appreciate it. I so. sent Brian one of my eyelashes. Yes, we sent you some stuff too. And feel free to do voodoo, witchcraft, whatever you want on Emily's hair. Um, we do have some exciting things that we are going to try to implement. Not try, we're going to do it because we're going to speak it into existence. But you've all been asking <sighs> that we do more than one episode a week. We used to and then, you know, well work. And just life and adulting. Me not doing anything. (laughs) But we thought of this really cool creative thing that we're going to do. So we're going to stick to the, you know, typical like one hour normal episodes a week. And then every other week, we're going to do something called like a 30 minute manner mystery type of deal. 30 minutes, maybe 40. You know me, I talk a lot. But it's just going to be like a mystery, whether it's like an unsolved case or just like an interesting mystery Um, we're going to be uploading those every other week. So we're going to be releasing this episode on Wednesday the 10th, which is tomorrow. And then we're also going to be doing the mystery, uploading it this week on Thursday. Thursday. So you'll be getting two episodes this week. And are we going to do that Patreon episode where we read from the jail thing? Yeah. Is that going to come out on Thursday? Well, no, we can do that on... Uh, that'll be next week, so glad you brought that up. So if you're a Patreon, you'll actually get two episodes every week because the week that we're not uploading the 30-minute misery 
mystery <laughs> on the normal thing, we'll be uploading a Patreon. So if you're a Patreon, you'll get two a week. Was that a lot? I'm so confused and I'm part of this podcast. What are you confused about? Because chances are if you're confused, they're confused. Okay. This week, long episode and 30-minute Misery Manor mystery. Next week, just one normal episode and a Patreon episode, and it continues. Okay, so Patreons only get a one special episode every other week. Yes, but they're getting four in all. Two a week. They're getting two a week. So oh. if you're not a Patreon, you only get two every other week. Oh, okay. I understand now. Thank you. I think the blow dryer got to you. I um, think it did too. <laughs> and also, I wanted to say, if you want to be a Patreon, click the link in our bio and you get all exclusive episodes and all the perks of being a Patreon. Maybe we'll upload Emily's nudes at some point. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, also, we've been getting a lot of DMs about like different cases. I got a really cool one today I have to share with you from somebody. Um, so if you have any suggestions or you come across any cases that you want us to cover, feel free to send it our way. We'll do some research and see if, you know, what we can dig up, baby. Why are you cupping your breast? I'm not. My nipple ring is itchy. Ew, is it crusty? <laughs> no, it just, it senses when my nerves are struck <laughs> and I'm about to hit you. Uh, also, before we get started into this episode, one last thing. We have one more week for you to screenshot that you're listening to the episode and post it on your story um, to be entered in our drawing to get whatever from our merch store that you would like. So please do that. It helps us significantly. So, Should we record us um, pulling that? Yeah. That way they know we're not rigging it. <laughs> well, I mean, like, we can, like, tape, like, videotape it. Well, we can go live on our Instagram. <gasps> Remember when I went live on accident one time? Sure did. <laughs> um, all right. Well, that's all of my shit. Do you have anything? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> I finally chose an episode I'm going to do next week. Yes, Emily's going to be getting her episodes ready, honey, so just get prepared. She's buckled down and she's at the library every single day. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's get started. So today's case is a very popular case, and mm -hmm. I have no doubt that the majority of you true crime lovers have probably heard this story before, but I thought it was a very interesting story that I wanted to see what I could dig up from it. So... Today, we are going to be discussing the Barbie and Ken killers. Ooh. Doom, doom, doom. So this story, if you don't know, is very fucking sick and twisted. But yes. before we dive into this episode, I do want to note there is going to be mention of drugs, rape, sodomy, abuse, and murder to uh, teenage girls. The drugs bother me. Right. I think I'm going to check out. Well, underage drugs. So this episode is focused on Carla Leanne Hamolka and Paul Bernardo. So these two are notoriously called the Barbie and Ken killers because of their good looks and like wholesome exteriors. But obviously, don't be fooled by their evil interior. Oh. So let's get into some background information on our killers, starting with Paul. So, born in 1964, Paul grew up in Scarborough, which is a suburb of Toronto, Canada. He spent a good deal of his young life in silence, um, and Paul found it very hard to express himself in many different ways. So, Marilyn Bernardo, his mother, later recalled that of her three children, her youngest son, Paul, was the least work. So, I found in the book, Lethal Marriage, have you ever heard of that book? Uh-uh. So, it's about this case. So, Nick Prawn, who's the author, describes young Paul as... He was always happy, a young boy who smiled a lot. 
He was so cute with his dimpled good looks and his sweet smile that many of the mothers just wanted to pinch him on the cheek whenever they saw him. He was the perfect child they all wanted. Polite, well-mannered, doing well in school, so sweet in his Boy Scout uniform. So I'm going to go back to the part where he was silent. Yeah. So he was born with a deformality where his tongue was actually partially attached to the floor of his mouth. Mine's like that. No, but I see that. Also, It's called a tongue tie. It also looks like, but his was to the point where he couldn't really talk. What does mine look like? A nub. So (laughs) finally, though, when Paul was about five years old, he had corrective surgery allowing him to speak more freely. Um, But before the surgery, Paul was only able to communicate through sounds and hand gestures. Um, And this would make Paul very frustrated. um, And obviously because his... he was getting frustrated because his if someone was not able to determine what he was saying, it would make him frustrated and he would just give up and like walk away. So although Paul did have this corrective surgery, it would be years before Paul was able to like fully communicate. So his parents put him in speech therapy classes. But when it was all said and done, now Paul had to deal with an- another issue growing up is he had a severe stutter. Okay. And you know how little kids are. They're ruthless. Can I it, say something about that? Yeah. Um, when I went to Beto's last, uh, like, the gun rally after um, Uvalde, mm-hmm. um, they had a woman, well, actually, I want to say a girl, because she was in high school, mm-hmm. and she was introducing all the speakers, and she had a massive stutter, got up there in front of hundreds of people, and introduced every single speaker. Yeah, because sometimes like stutters hours. only come up, like, it's triggered by certain things. I don't know, but she went up there like a badass and did yeah. the entire... It was like... It gives me, like, goose, like pimples thinking yeah. about it. Like That's amazing. Yeah, it was really neat. So, the kids were horrible to him growing up about this, so this was just, like, another setback yeah. for Paul, and it made him very self-conscious. But on top of that, Paul was also struggling severely at home, Um, Paul was living in a very abusive household and witnessed the abuse day in and day out from his father, Kenneth. Um, Not on him. The victim was his mother. Okay. So the abuse that Paul's mother went through was wasn't just physical, um, though that was like definitely part of the routine. Paul's father, Kenneth, regularly berated his wife, treating her with resentment and disrespect. And Paul just thought this was like a normal part of life growing up. Um, It's just what he was used to. So he was very used to this domestic violence in his home. um, And it made Paul feel like he was never safe. Um, This also is what a lot of people think induced Paul's own attraction to violence. Okay. Because he was growing up seeing it. So as Paul grew older, so did his attraction for violence even to the point of alarming his classmates at school. Often on the playground or in the classroom during like free time or playtime, his teachers and classmates would have to tell Paul to calm down because he would take roughhousing to the extreme and hurt his peers like to where they were going to the nurses. He would like try to strangle them, like twist their arms and just like beat the fuck out of them. This is in elementary? Yeah, this is in like grade school. Wow. So unfortunately, his father's abuse of his mother wasn't only wasn't only the domestic violence Paul was exposed to, his father was also molesting his older sister, Debbie, from the time she was only nine years old. Paul witnessed all of these acts made by his father. Um, his father also was charged with child molestation for, quote, fondling a young girl. He, wait, do you think he was forced to watch it? I just think he was in the household and they really didn't give a shit where the fuck they were doing it. 
could be that he was forced. I didn't see that. So, so sadly though, Marilyn knew about these horrible sexual acts happening to her daughter, Debbie, but did little to nothing to do about it. Instead, she resented Debbie and told her that she was mad because she was stealing Kenneth, the husband's attention away from her. That's common. Remember yeah. we saw that in we the Rosemary that. West well, we and we did it in the um, the girl that was trapped in the box. Remember her? Yes. yes, exactly. So from a young age, Paul is learning that violence, verbal abuse, and sexual assault were perfectly acceptable behavior at home. So okay. as he got older, he almost mimicked his father's behavior uh-huh. and would berate and belittle his mother any chance he could get alongside his father. Shit. So. Besides from the violence and the abuse that Paul was giving to his mother, he quite enjoyed high school as he was growing up. In fact, Paul matured and he developed into quite the hunk. His blonde hair, blue eyes, pretty smile, and his broad shoulders were starting to get the attention of all the girls in high school. And all of the, gar- uh, the girls were crushing on Paul like really hard. So in 1980, when Paul was 15 years old, one particular girl caught his, ire, his eye and his name... <laughs> And her name was Nadine Brommer, and she was very popular in school. She was very beautiful. She was petite, blonde, and when she found out Paul was into her, she was already into Paul as well. So when he asked her after a couple of, like, dates and, like, hanging out to be his girlfriend, Nadine did not hesitate to say yes. So Nadine and Paul developed a wonderful relationship, and they were uh, both very excited for the future. wonderful 15-year-old relationship. Well, at the time, they thought it was the grand dame. So Paul's life, so while this relationship, though, was prospering prospering and being wonderful, his home life, though, was deteriorating, like, quickly. Okay. So his mom completely withdrew from day-to-day life, and her fights with both Kenneth and Paul escalated one day when Marilyn revealed that Kenneth wasn't Paul's real father, but the rest of the children were, which outcasted Paul even more. Yeah, I was wondering if his brothers took part in, like, the abuse towards her. No, I didn't read much about the the brothers. So she went on to tell Paul that he was product of an affair. So as you can imagine, after hearing this news, Paul was feeling a mix of emotions and was furious. So she's basically saying, well, Paul... that's not your father you are basically what is it called a bastard child and the rest of your kids are Kenneth's kids so like just basically outcasting him and he felt like complete shit so he's Paul Snow right he's what (laughs) on Game of Thrones you were given the last name Snow if you're a bastard child so unsurprisingly he grew even more resentful to his mother more than ever So Paul would often ignore his mother's request to do certain things around the house and even started shouting out the same mean names that he heard his father call his mom, such as Slav and Fat Cow. (laughs) I don't know why I almost laughed. Fat Cow. Um, And he he would make jokes like, well, you're not like, no, you're not the boss of me. I don't have to do all that. No. Like, he honestly did not care. So as Paul's relationship with his mother became more and more volatile, he grew increasingly controlling of his girlfriend, Nadine. So at first everything was good, and now he's controlling her. And she was like, oh, hell to the no, ma'am. So (laughs) Nadine started picking up on this behavior, and she dumped him just like that. She was like, fuck no. So, but you know how you can be in high school. You want to retaliate. She was mad that he was treating her like that. So she broke up with him, and then she said, you know what, Paul? I made out with one of your best friends. <gasps> so she like rubbed it in his face. So at this point, Paul is livid. He's sad. He's feeling all these mix of emotions because the two most important women in his life have both betrayed him. I don't see. 
how his mother betrayed well, him. Well, you always, even if it's like, the way, because that was in the book, so the way that I interpret it, like, even though your mom treats you bad, it's still your mom, and you want them to be. But he's treating her like garbage. But she's mad, it's out of resentment for what, he, how she's treating them. I mean, I don't get it. I'd be like, fuck you, bitch. But he's sad, and he's young at this point. Well, so, think about that before you name your child Oyster, please. <laughs> I know, I love that name. So, in the fall of 1983, when Paul was 19 years old, he went off to college and met some trusting new friends. All seemed good. He was able to get away from his home life and focus on college. He did love studying. He did love learning good stuff. And he thought this was going to be, like, a, a good experience for him. I just what, said learning good stuff. I know. Learning new going, things. What is he going to school for? He wanted to be a lawyer, I believe, at oh. first. So... So he meets all these good friends. They're hanging out. However, in college is when he started learning and, like, revealing his sexual and dark fantasies in his head. So at first, he usually just kept them in. And now he's starting to be vocal about them. And he started sharing these fantasies with his new group of friends. And they were like, what the fuck? And he even told them that he has dreams of having a, quote, virgin farm where there was, like, girls in stables of underage virgins, and Paul could come into this farm and pick out which virgin he wants for the day. So they were like, oh, yeah, dude, cool. But really, they were like, let's get the fuck out of here. So not surprising at all, all the girls that Paul pursued in college were very young, and his intentions were far more than predatory, uh, oh, sorry, far more predatory than wanting a romantic relationship with them. So during this time at the University of Toronto Scarborough, he uh, forced several minors to have brutal and rough sex <gasps> with him, including a 16-year-old girl named Dale Colton. Uh-huh. Sometimes he would pull out a knife during the act and force her to do things she was not comfortable with. How is her name even... She's a minor. How is her name even public? Maybe because she's older now. Oh, I have maybe all... she wanted to... Yeah, you know. oh, well, she's in the book, yeah. Okay, so not only did violence, like, thrill Paul, but also uh, acts of humiliation. So Paul seduced these teen girls and young women only to degrade them once they were in bed and made them feel worthless. He was very aggressive towards them and would force them to tell him how much they liked what was happening. And a lot of the girls that I read that were underage of course, loved the idea of being with an older guy. He was attractive, and he used his good looks and his, like, smooth personality to make them feel comfortable and then he completely destroyed and they them. might have thought like oh that's like what older guys do like right. this is normal exactly which is so whenever any of his victims uh warned that he that they was they were going to report him paul just threatened to kill him so most were frightened into silence though two girls filed restraining orders against him but the rest were completely silent So all these acts continued to occur over time, but Paul got increasingly bored with consensual sex. It was not exciting to him anymore. He didn't like it. The thought about having girlfriends and one night stands was a complete waste of time to him. If if he wanted to truly rob a teenage girl of their innocence, he knew there was only one way to do that and he was willing to do whatever it takes. I thought you were gonna say raw dog. (laughs) No. So in the early hours of May 4th, 1987, 22-year-old Paul watched from afar in the distant shadows as Chelsea Hagen got off her bus in the neighborhood near Paul's university. So 21-year-old Chelsea was simply on her way home from a fun evening out with her friends in Toronto. 
As Chelsea started walking the three blocks to her parents' home, Paul caught up with her and he was just a few steps behind her at this point. He stalked Chelsea until she was just steps away from her front door. Paul was nervous that Chelsea was going to get away, so Paul like lunged at Chelsea Ew. and forced her on her back in the sidewalk in the middle of the night. Chelsea kicked, she screamed, but Paul was far too strong for Chelsea um, to get away. So he choked her into silence and proceeded to brutally molest and rape her. Mm. And this is like all in the street in front of her house, by the way. So he loosened up his grip on her throat and demanded that Chelsea speak to declare that Paul was the only man she ever desired and wanted in life. She didn't even know him. After an hour into this rape, Chelsea's father heard something (gasps) and turned on the porch light because he was growing worried. He was like, wait, what was that? Also, wait, my daughter has not made it home yet. She said she was going to be home. So when Paul noticed that the porch light came on, he quickly just got up and ran into the distance. And Chelsea was just left on the ground. like Naked? Naked, bruised, bloody, whatever. um, (sighs) For her father to, to stumble across. So Paul gets home and he was like, that was the best feeling ever. Like he was satisfied to like high heavens. Paul found this appetite for violence and sex only growing. He knew that it was something that he wanted to experience as much as he could. So now we're going to transition to the Barbie of this duo. And that is Carla. Should have been a Karen. So, Carla's family was just your average family. Carla was born in Port Credit, Ontario, in 1970, to her mother, Dorothy, and, his, and her father, Carol. And it's spelled K-E-R-E-L. Eventually, the family welcomed two more girls, Lori and Tammy. All three sisters were strikingly good-looking with blonde hair and blue eyes. Carla never wanted to be perceived as weak or flawed, so she strived for success in everything she did and hated to lose control of any situation. She was very, very, very competitive, so like she's the opposite of someone that you would want Me? to invite to game night. Because oh. she'll ruin it for every fucking body. She'd be like, you fucking cheated. <laughs> So Carla's mother would rant and rave about how bright-minded Carla was and how she was destined for success, but her teachers would describe her as, quote, eager. However, her friends and classmates did not get the same sort of image and considered Carla to be bossy and controlling. And cunt. (laughs) My mom always told me I was bossy. You are. And sensitive. When she was... I'm kidding. (laughs) I'm kidding, baby. When she was little, Carla did not mind sharing her toys with her friends, but only if they promised to play with the toys as long as she wanted in the way that she wanted them to. Oh, yeah, that was definitely like... (laughs) If they did not listen to Carla, she would throw a fit and take the toys away from them. So it was like her way or no way. In her younger years, this obsessive need to control others was one of Carla's few trouble points. Other than that, everything was, she was like a good kid, right? However, as she got older and experienced more, life seemed to spin Carla in a different direction than what everybody had in mind for her. But you know, as you get into high school, you kind of find a new identity, right? So in ninth grade, she developed a weird fascination for death and all things dark and scary and like gory. So she I was also, like goth in ninth grade. But she also started to dress wearing very dark clothes. She dyed her hair red and black oh. and she started drinking alcohol with her friends and getting like wasted. But that's not bad. You can this 
style's totally normal, but it gets worse, okay? So this is like a huge contrast from the once girly feminine girl that everybody yeah. knew growing up. So to add Carla's new and dark persona, her friends became worried when they started noticing that she was cutting herself all over. Oh, no. When her friends would ask her about it and offer help, Carla would either, like, ignore them and shrug it off, or she would just say, like, quote, I'm just depressed. Like, don't worry about it. I'm fine. Okay. But, like, but was she bringing it to people's attention? Well, you know, typically when that happens, you see people wear, like, long sleeve clothes and stuff, but she wasn't particularly hiding it, um, but she did not like to talk about it. Okay. But they were like, obviously something's wrong. I'm like, we're your friends. We want to help you. So she even told... Okay, this is where it gets weird. So she told her friends that she really wanted to draw spots on them and play connect the dots with a knife. Uh, and they were like, no, ma'am. <laughs> no, ma'am. Like, okay, let's just play tic-tac-toe on my breast. So huh. while it seems like Carla left much of her old self in the past, it's possible like her aggressive new personality was just another example of Carla exerting her need like for complete control. So being the rebellious teen was a role that she could perfect and one that offered extra perks because it won over all the attention of others. She almost sounds like she has OCD because she's like, she's so obsessed. And she has an addictive personality. Like once she's on something. I mean, I have it, so I know what it's like. Like that's what it seems like to me. Exactly. But that's weird because then I know what you're going to tell me about Paul controlling her. So that's, I don't know. Exactly. No, I was the same way. So we'll get into that. So Carla's actions around this time, like likely stem from the desire of outside validation and attention, which is something she might've felt deprived at home. So her father, Carol, was a traveling salesman, and Carla resented his frequent absence because of this. So Carla often broke the rules her parents had in place for her just to be able to get a rise and attention out of her father. So he was often gone, and she knew that if she, you know, didn't do what was asked, he would be forced to Any attention is good attention. Exactly. So Carla knew just how to push her father's buttons, and as a result, the two had a very volatile... Is it volatile or volatile? Volatile relationship and would often yell and scream at each other. So to make matters worse, Carol drank a lot. And he would scream at their eldest daughter, too. um, And just, you know, it was just a very... He would come home um, from his busy day at work and just start drinking and just, like, lash out at the two girls. So for Carla, repeated exposure to her father's verbal assaults was likely upsetting at first, but over time... The secondary feeling of pleasure dominated the way that she took those encounters. Like, she liked the uh, feeling of being degraded at this point. So this is going to develop into the persona that she's going to take on. So when 17-year-old Carla felt ready to have sex for the first time, it seemed that she wanted to replicate the feeling that she got from being degraded. So now, once somebody who hated that feeling, now this is her new sexual desire. Because, again, it's what she's used to. Hate that. After she lost her virginity, Carla went to school and bragged to her school friends about losing her virginity to a boy named Doug. So the story that she told her friends was not the normal story of someone like losing their virginity for the first time. Um, Her story included a lot of um, bondage, violence, like BDSM type of stuff for her first time losing her virginity. So she told her friends that Doug was high on cocaine and they had violent sex. She said that uh, he even, uh, like, whipped out a belt and beat the shit out of her and, like, degraded her and called her names, and she loved it. I feel so, like that's not true. Right. So when her friends went up to Doug, like, dude, what the fuck? He was like, that is not what happened at all. Like Coke dick. Right. She was like, he was like, I, de- 
he said, no, we de- she definitely lost her virginity to me, but it wasn't anything like that at all. I'm just picturing Doug the cartoon. Me too. So it seemed Carla desired, like, a misogynistic lover. Okay. So while, so while lucky for Carla, she would not have to wait too long because there was one right around the corner. Do you know who? You. <laughs> Paul. So in October 1987, not long after her night with Doug, Carla was invited to attend a convention in a nearby um, Scarborough, so where Paul is, um, kind of like a convention center. So the 17-year-old jumped at the opportunity, and she was very excited about like an overnight trip. It was a couple hours away, and it was a great way for her to kind of like get away and meet new people. I think it was a work convention. She's 17. Well, she worked. What? It could have been. I didn't. I didn't find why, but the details to me, since it's in the city of where the university is, it could have been for incoming people that uh, wanted to go to that uh, university, okay, like a networking, right, thing. Okay. or like a um, yeah, Pray. exactly, like for him, it's to find, right, pray. So she attended this conference, and on the night of the uh, convention, Carla stayed up late and ordered herself a drink at the hotel bar. So I guess she had a fake ID. So now are, in Canada, can't they drink when they're older? I don't know. I mean, sooner? Maybe. Younger? So maybe, yeah, maybe so. So she was getting hammered at the bar. So it was there that she caught the eye of 23-year-old Paul Bernardo. So he was immediately drawn to her youthful looks, beautiful smile, petite frame. So he walked right up to her and introduced himself. He said, hi, I'm Paul. You look beautiful. Are you enjoying yourself tonight? Like, I was until you came over here. But Carla was immediately intrigued by Paul's great looks, and she just loved the fact that he was older than her. Like, he, she loved that. Because, remember, she didn't have a father figure. Yeah. She kind of looked at him like that. So, the two yeah. sat at the bar. They had a few drinks, and eventually Carla invited Paul up to her room. And Paul did not waste any time, and he did not need to be asked twice. He simply said, let's go. Ew. So... When they got in the elevator, he already had his, like, hands wrapped around Carla's waist. And, like, he, she loved this aggressive behavior in him, though. Like, it turned her on. She, she loved it. So as she opened the door to her room, they quickly made their way to her bed, wasting no time in ripping off each other's clothes and having sex. So caught up in the experience and passion, Carla told Paul that she was in love with him during the first sex that they had after only knowing him for two hours. She was like, I'm in love with you. Oh, okay. She's addicted to what the dick did. (laughs) (laughs) The next morning, morning, the next morning, Carla wrote down her phone number for Paul. Neither of them could wait to reunite either. So Carla had found someone to act on her desire for degrading and violent sex, and Paul found someone that he could shape and mold into whatever he pleased. So match made in heaven. Hell. Or hell, yeah. So the week at, the weekend after first meeting, Paul made the drive to Carla's hometown and spent time with her and met her parents. So Carol and Dorothy welcomed Paul into their home like with open arms. They were very happy for Carla and felt a sense of peace that their daughter was dating an older, handsome, and mature man. Her parents thought Paul would be a good influence on their daughter. Their parents were taken back by his goofy personality, his intelligence, and seemed to treat their daughter very, very well. They were also intrigued by his striking uh, good looks, and he thought that they would say that the couple looked like Barbie and Ken. So Paul showered Carla with love, with affection. Like They just was like, oh my God, this is so great. That's how my family is with you. Oh. 
Well, little do they know. I'm kidding. <laughs> so he sent flowers. He called daily, and he took her to very expensive restaurants. So Carla's friends, though, became very worried because they were like, "Girl, you're moving too quickly." And they were concerned with Paul's motive with their friend because, you know, he's 23, she's 17. They just thought it was kind of weird. But Carla assured them that he was the one, honey. So she was so confident in her love and feeling for Paul that she would write Carla Bernardo in all of her books. Like, like little, like, giddy schoolgirl. So Paul's visits were soon so frequent on the weekends that Dorothy and Carol agreed to let him spend the night, but only if he slept on the couch. But remember, Paul was, because remember, Paul was traveling a few hours on the weekends to see her, and they were like, you know, it's only fair if you spend the night. Like, I don't want you to have to drive here and then drive back, you know? So he could stay on the couch. But little did her parents know, as soon as they fell asleep at night, Paul would sneak up into Carla's room and sleep with her. And then when the sun would start to rise in the morning, he would wake up and already be on the couch when they woke up in the morning. They had to have That would give me anxiety, like, fuck, did I oversleep? Are they already up? So the parents said that they did not suspect this behavior because they did not have a reason not to trust Paul. However, it was not all rainbows and sunshine, honey. It wasn't long before Paul abused Carla's feelings for him. So when she got a perm he didn't like, (laughs) she would just let her hair grow out and like long and natural like he wanted. He didn't want the black hair dye and the red. He wanted it blonde, so she grew it out. Paul did not like her punky attire, so she traded in her punk clothes for the preppy ones he preferred. Carla also loved eating occasional like fast food meals, but Paul made her give up all of that and replace them with salads, fruits, and vegetables. (gasps) He was trying to mold Carla into a woman that he desired. He was like, look, you have potential, but let's get rid of these few things and you'll be spot on, honey. Why are you looking at me? Well, do you want me to look at the floor? No, but it just felt personal. Oddly enough. (laughs) It felt personal. So oddly enough, though, Carla was rewarded for her devotion and sacrifices for Paul. When she ate well and dressed nicely and behaved as Paul wanted, he would bring her gifts and flowers and made her feel wanted and loved. If she did not, he would ignore her or degrade her in many ways. But I thought she liked to be degraded. He doesn't know at this point. Okay. But when 17-year-old Carla wasn't paying attention to the warning signs, she was too distracted by Paul's love and affection when he was happy with her decision. So keeping him happy meant more than, like, being happy with herself, right? Right. She was like, you know what, I can sacrifice all this as long as he's happy. And if he was happy, it meant more time in the bedroom, and that's what the little freaky bitch wanted. So, Paul didn't like that Carla wasn't a virgin either when they first met. So, to make up for that, he insisted she perform specific acts on him. Even if they made her uncomfortable, she had already given up parts of herself to keep Paul happy. So, like, he was like, well, what's a few more? You know, you can do it. You're not a virgin, so you need to do these things for me. And it's, like, sick, like, sodomy and that kind of stuff. Like, anal and stuff that she wasn't very comfortable with. But he made her. So... Though Carla seemed content to change herself to suit her boyfriend, her friends from school were very worried again. So the friends felt validated in their concern when they found a note in Carla's bedroom when they were out hanging out. So the letter was in Carla's handwriting, but it was possible that Paul dictated it to her. It read, quote, Never let anyone know our relationship is anything but perfect. Do not talk back to Paul. Always smile when you're with Paul. Be a perfect girlfriend to Paul. If Paul asks for a drink, bring him one quickly and happily. Remember, you're stupid. Remember, you're ugly. Remember, you're fat. 
I don't know why I have to tell you these things because you'll never change, end quote. Oh, that's not like the poem you read me earlier. No, mine was, that one was sweet. So her friends hated knowing that this was the way Paul had made Carla feel about herself. But a lot of people suspected that this made Carla love Paul even more. Because remember, she loved to be degraded. She was desperately in love and nothing anyone could say or do could change her mind about that. Carla would write herself reminders on how to be the perfect partner for Paul and how to treat them. him. She was constantly evolving and changing to fit this picture-perfect person that he wanted for her. However, Paul made no effort to be anything other than what he's always been. So like most people writing on their wall or on their mirrors, remember to smile, be the best you. She was like, suck his dick when he gets home from work, give him a, <laughs> give him a drink when he gets home, be a key, yeah, all that horrible stuff. So though Carla attended to all of his needs, she couldn't satisfy his every desire. She was too submissive in giving him whatever he wanted, and, uh, and he wanted her to be challenging from time to time. So this is where it's going to start. She would do whatever he wanted, and remember, he liked it when they put up a fight. So okay. this is where they're going to have a difference. So because of this blossoming relationship with Carla, Paul stopped raping women around the area, but only briefly. As the winter season approached in 1987, Paul thought back on his previous rapes and the details from the assaults. So he felt his like violent urges from that bubbling up to surface. So in December of that year, just a couple of months into the relationship with Carla, he decided it was time to find him another victim. Carla was just not enough for him. So Paul found his next victim, 15-year-old figure skater Sherry Sykes. One night, Sherry was walking home from the bus when Paul grabbed the young girl and took her off to a secluded and private area, and he violently raped the teen. Sherry immediately told her parents so she gets away. So she immediately told her parents what had happened and took their daughter to the police immediately to make a report. Sherry gave the police a description of Paul, allowing them to issue a warning to women in the area. Um, one of Paul's former girlfriends also told police that Paul might be their culprit. They were like, um, I think that fits the image of Paul. Like, this is oh, who he is. Oh, after they released that. Right. But unfortunately, no one followed up on the reports, <sighs> and Paul continued to target young girls and women, only boosting his confidence because he's getting away with it. Yeah, I gathered that. So over the next two years, Paul raped at least six more women, all while Carla remained in the dark about his twisted double life. So at this point, she had no idea. Um, but in all fairness, she was busy, like, catering to Paul's, like, sadistic desires. Almost said satanic, which those are kind of. So no matter what she did, it was never enough to keep Paul completely happy. So by 1990, 26-year-old Paul developed a troubling fixation on someone else, Carla's 15-year-old sister, Tammy. And Paul made no secret of this crush. She was very vocal about it and very, like, handsy with her when he was around her. In front of the parents? No. So Paul would flirt with Tammy when they were alone, but this didn't, like, escape Carla's notice. So you would think Carla would be jealous and upset, like, bitch, that's my sister. What the fuck? Nope. Carla enabled this behavior from Paul. She liked it. So she even broke the blinds in her sister's room so Paul could watch her changing at night. What the fuck? But Paul did not think that the role of peeping Tom was satisfying and he wanted more. He wanted Tammy's virginity and told Carla when they first met that she owed him Tammy's virginity because Carla was not one. Okay. 
Right. So Carla needed little convincing to help make this happen, and the devious couple made the plan. On the evening of July 24th, 1990, Carla crushed up Valium tablets, a sedative she stole from her job. Sedative. What did I say? Sedative. Sedative? <laughs> I'm not a druggie. She told from her, so she stole these from her job. She worked at an animal clinic, so she stole them. So they're uh, for like horses, a horse tranquilizer. So, uh, that is different, sir. Oh, well, those are later. <laughs> so yes. when Tammy and her parents were not looking, Carla slipped the drug into Tammy's bowl of spaghetti. <gasps> After dinner, Tammy became very tired and went to bed early and passed out as planned. Paul and Carla snuck into her room and had a full game plan on how this was about to go down. With the whole family there. Well, they're asleep, but yes. So Carla stood guard at the door while Paul raped Tammy's unconscious-like body, but after a few moments, Tammy started to move around. Fuck. So panicked that she was going to wake up, Paul stopped and they hurried out of the room. Paul then began to yell at Carla because he was so furious that Tammy was like waking up like this was not supposed to happen she was not supposed to wake up and he was like what the fuck you didn't put enough so that didn't stop him Paul was still determined to get it right the next time so for the next year he continuously asked Carla if they could try over and over again to do this to Tammy and then one day she was like yep let's do it it's time a year a year so by December of 1990, around Christmas time, Carla decided <gasps> that the uh, Carla decided that the best Christmas gift that she could give Paul would be none other than her sister's virginity. So the first time, I think he only like molested her. There wasn't any like insertion penetration. Penetration. So she wanted to give him her sister's virginity. So on December 23rd, two days before <laughs> Christmas Eve, Paul enjoyed dinner with the Hamolka family as usual. After Carla's parents and sister Lori went upset to bed, Tammy decided to stay up and watch a Christmas movie with Paul and Carla. But well, she she didn't already get creepy vibes from him being handsy with her? Mm-mm, because she was so sedated, she didn't know. No, because she was kind of into it, too. But she was so sedated the first time when she woke up, oh, she didn't even yeah. know that this had happened. Yeah. So while Tammy and Paul got comfortable in the basement, so she's totally kind of like about this, Carla went to the kitchen to prepare drinks for the three of them. Carla decided the perfect Christmas cocktail for them would be eggnog with like some rum in it, which sounds pretty good. But to Tammy's, she also added, how, how, so I'm going to spell it, H-A-L-C-I-O-N, which is a, uh, like an animal tranquilizer. So she got this one from the animal clinic too. Let me see. H-A-L-C-I-O-N. So while Carla was making Tammy's drink, she made sure... I don't know. Whatever. It's an animal tranquilizer. So while Carla was making Tammy's drink, she made sure uh, she gave her more than enough to do the trick because she did not want to upset Paul or be blamed if something went wrong. So after making the drinks, Carla went back over to Paul and Tammy and gave them their drinks. This time, her concoction worked like a charm. Not long into the movie, Tammy passed out and Paul took full advantage of this opportunity. So passed out, Paul pulled Tammy's clothes off while Carla aimed a video camera at the action. They decided to memorialize the occasion um, and made sure that her sister remained asleep. So Carla held an anesthetic drenched washcloth to Tammy's face so she could breathe that in and they took turns sexually assaulting the sedated dangerously drunk girl so they is that were, what burned her face yes so 
I'm going to get to that. So Paul would whisper things to Carla, giving her instructions on what to do next. That is... Although she didn't like disobeying Paul, some of the requests were far too much for 20-year-old Carla to take. She attempted to say no, but ultimately gave in to her role in her sister's rape. So he was asking her to do things like sodomy, like stick things up her, perform certain things on her sister, video him doing certain things to her. And she just gave in, even though she felt very uncomfortable. At some point, Paul stopped during the rape. And suddenly, Tammy started to vomit and started choking. So Paul and Carla panicked and attempted to, like, clear her throat out to revive her. Um, So they were doing this over and over again. But uh, before they knew it, Tammy was dead and she wasn't breathing. So the couple picked up Tammy and moved her into Carla's bedroom and then phoned 911. It was around 2 a.m. when a police cruiser and an ambulance arrived at the Homoka residence. The commotion woke Carla's family, who watched in horror as Tammy was carried out on a stretcher. Carla's parents kept saying, like, what happened? What happened? But Paul and Carla simply said that she just stopped breathing at some point during the movie. Um, And they blamed it on, like, the alcohol. So Tammy was quickly rushed to the hospital. So Detective David Weeks held Carla and Paul back for questioning repeating that they'd already told Carla's what they had already told parents. So they were given given the detectives the same story. So we were watching a movie, we had some eggnog and rum, she stopped breathing, she choked, she died. So and just like that they were like, oh, okay. Um and then like during this interrogation in the house, they got a call from the hospital that Tammy had in fact died. Um so upon hearing this news, Carla's other sister Lori burst out in tears and she ran upstairs in like agonizing pain. And the investigators actually followed her up to her room to check on her. But this gave Carla an opportunity to dispose of the evidence. So as they ran up there, she rushed to do laundry and hid the anesthetic in a cupboard. And then she stuffed all the incriminating linens into the washing machine and like started doing laundry. So the detectives noticed that she was doing laundry and they were like, well, this is kind of odd. But... They thought that this could also be some sort of like coping mechanism in a way that she was kind of distracting herself from the reality of what just happened. Because remember, at this point, they just thought it was like, you know, an accident. They were not thinking that uh, Paul and Carla had anything to do with it. No one suspected foul play. So that being said, the coroner did notice something odd about Tammy's body. The skin around her mouth was, like, burnt, like a chemical yeah, burn. Yeah, I've seen the pictures. So it looked like a chemical burn, and ultimately uh, Tammy died from choking on her own stomach bile. Fuck. The coroner determined that the burn was likely just gastrointestinal acid from her own vomit. Little did they know, it was actually that anesthetic-soaked washcloth. Right, I was wondering if, like, did they, is there... Did they do a toxicology or did she vomit up all of she that? She vomited all of it up. And that thought so because the bile came up last and they thought that's what burned her. Fuck. So Paul and Carla breathed a huge sigh of relief when the investigation came to a, to a close. They could not believe that they had actually gotten away with their accidental murder of Tammy. So thanks to Carla's quick thinking, there was no, uh, there was no remaining evidence that anything out of the ordinary happened. Well except for the video that they made. So despite the incriminating footage, Paul couldn't bring himself to destroy the tape. Like, Carla was like, we have to get rid of it. And you know what he said? He loved watching himself rape his girlfriend's unconscious sister, and he was obsessed with that moment and that feeling of finally taking her virginity. He could not get rid of it. He wanted it. 
and he would like hold it like it was a baby like no these are my tapes like, he would not i can't get rid no he did not want to get rid of them because carlo's like oh baby we're getting rid of them murder is on there right well i guess like leading up to the murder would be on there so although paul had taken tammy's virginity just like he had wanted he was very angry at carla he blamed her for tammy's death because that was not part of the plan Paul beat her and threatened to tell Carla's parents and the police that she murdered her own sister. Paul used this to her his advantage and would hold it over Carla so that she would do anything and everything that Paul would want her to do. As if she wasn't already doing it. Uh, yeah. So Paul insisted Carla find new ways to please him sexually. He had one particularly twisted fantasy in mind. Paul wanted Carla to role play as a young sister. So in January of 1991, just weeks after Tammy's death, Paul decided he wanted to record some more videos and he wanted Carla to be dressed in her sister's, like her young sister's clothing, sprawled out on Tammy's bed. Oh, specifically Tammy, Tammy, not just a younger. Right, and acting okay. like a young, innocent girl. That way they can rewatch the films whenever he pleases. So she did. At one point in these tapes, Carla suggested that if Paul wanted more virgins like Tammy, they should just start kidnapping young girls in the summer because, quote, it is easier to find virgins when it's warmer outside. (laughs) I don't know what that meant, but yeah. It's unclear whether Carla genuinely wanted to watch Paul rape virgin teens or if she wanted to take the attention off her and onto somebody else. But it seems she was committed to satisfying his sexual fantasies, no matter the cost. So eventually, Paul popped the question, will you marry me, Carla? And she was ecstatic. She quickly said yes. And in January of 1991, he suggested that the two move in together. And she did not hesitate, honey. She was like, the bags are packed and I'm coming in. I'm coming home. Okay. I know, but I changed it. So until then, they had only been able to spend together on the weekends, but living under the same roof would completely change everything. Right. Paul knew in the back of his mind, if he had Carla living with him full time, he would have more opportunity to control and groom his young bride-to-be. So Uh. Paul quickly moved into the role of being, quote, king of the house, and he forced Carla to sleep on the floor and frequently beat her when she disobeyed him in any way, shape, or form. The sex was violent, just as he wanted, but he found Carla to be too damn submissive, and this is not what he wanted. Paul told her, you know, he likes the violence, the humiliation, and the torture against someone's will, but she was just there to please him again. So Paul's urges were far too strong, and having uh, Carla tend to every need was not satisfying enough, so he told her, We've got to find more people. This is not working out. So by the summer of 1991, 26-year-old Paul was ready to find his next victim. Oh, my God. So this is the point where we're going to get to back-to-back-to-back murders. So the memory of rape and accidental murder of his fiancée's teenage sister was not enough at this point to satisfy these desires, and he thought about them quite often. On June 7th, Carla wanted to give in to her husband's wishes and demands and wanted to supply him with a young virgin. She invited a girl that she knew who she had met at a pet shop two years prior over to their house to hang out. So 
this is a Jane Doe, considered a Jane Doe. I don't know if they don't actually don't know the girl's name or they just want to keep her a secret, but I'm just going to refer to her as Jessica. So when 15-year-old Jessica arrived at their home, they started to play games, they fed her, they gave her whatever sort of cocktail or wine she wanted. They also started to manipulate her in playing their sexual game. So once she was like cocktailed up, they were like, hey, let's do this, let's do that. So more than once, Carla ordered Natasha, oh, sorry, Jessica. At first I picked Natasha. <laughs> ordered Jessica to perform oral sex on Paul. Jessica was hesitant on a lot of the demands, but Carla ended up drugging her drink to relax her. During the rape, Jessica started choking and vomiting, so they called 911, but later recalled the ambulance as they were able to resuscitate her, which I didn't think you could just recall an ambulance, but they did. So eventually Jessica just went into a deep sleep. So with no recollection of what had happened the night before. So she just like woke up and she was like, whoa, like, did I just have a rough ass night? So she woke up feeling sick, but she didn't realize why. Like she thought she had drank way too much and she just had like a severe hangover. Okay. But if they're raping her, like you would feel your vagina and your like, but or whatever, like they were doing to her, you would feel feel that. that. Right. So she was like, yo, I need to go home. I'm not trying to be, like, blaming her, but I'm like... And I don't know the extent of the rape. It said rape, but it very well could have been, um, like, um, touching and stuff like that. Okay, but I'm like, if they're forcing, like, something in there... At this point, wasn't sodomy yet. So, oh, I know what you're saying. Yes. So she was like, yo, I need to go home. She didn't say it like that, obviously. But so Jessica headed home and like the deed was done. And Paul felt like so cocky. And he was like, dude, we have to do this again. Like, I love this. So just a short week later on June 15, 1991, Paul cruised through the streets looking for his next young victim. After 1 a.m., he noticed 14-year-old Leslie Mahaffey alone in the on the doorstep of her family's home she had just gotten back from attending her friend's funeral leslie missed curfew that night and was terrified of what her parents were going to say and do to her she was like dreading waking up her parents to be let in and leslie was also known in the neighborhood or in the town as being kind of rebellious like she was known to sneak out she was known to kind of get into some trouble okay like teenage stuff right exactly not uncommon right so Paul spotted her and decided she was perfect and knew that she was the one that he wanted for the night. So Paul used his charming nature and his good looks to lure the teen into him, and he struck up a conversation with her. So he went up to her and was like, hey, I'm thinking about breaking into some of these homes in the neighborhood. And she like looked at him like, okay, cool. And she's like, do you have a cigarette I can have? He was like, yeah, absolutely. So he like led her to his car, and as the teen approached... Um, and she was, like, within arm's distance to the car. He pulled out a knife and was like, don't fucking say a word. Oh. But so, he hadn't taken people like this in the past. And he was within like... a weapon. Right. And he was like, do what I say. So using the weapon, Paul maneuver- maneuvered the teen into the car. Then he forced her to put on a blindfold and sped off into the distance before anyone saw them. When he arrived home, Paul forced Leslie inside. He let her he let her into the guest room where he undressed and raped the 14-year-old girl all while Carla was asleep upstairs. So she had no idea this was oh. going on. It wasn't until hours later that he woke to his fiance to tell her what he had done. So Paul continued to torture and abuse Leslie for the rest of the day while listening to Bob Marley and David Bowie music. Uh- At one point, Paul said to Leslie, I mean, yeah, Ron Leslie. Yeah. At one point, 
um, Paul said to Leslie, quote, you're doing a good job, Leslie, a damn good job, adding, quote, the next two hours are going to determine what I do to you. Right now, you are scoring perfect, Leslie. So Paul went on to sodomize her and stated in her interview that she cried out in pain while her hands were tied behind her back and he was raping her. After a long day of abuse, Paul brought so the girl still blindfolded up stairs to Carla. He instructed Carla to prepare drinks for them and he wanted to sit down and quote just have a friendly conversation. Carla noticed that even before she had the alcohol, Leslie seemed seemed like out of touch with reality. She was almost in like a zombie state. This is likely the result of trauma Leslie endured for hours on end. So diminished, so I read that diminished alertness, dulled sensory functions, and bewilderment are all common symptoms of the first phase of a rape trauma syndrome. So still when Paul asked her about herself, Leslie spoke with clarity. She told Paul and Carla, quote, can you please bring me home? I really want to see my little brother, Ryan. But Paul ignored her request. So he had something in mind for Leslie. Paul went to retrieve his video camera and set it up to start recording. Just like with Tammy, he wanted to remember every moment. For the next several hours, he and Carla raped the teenager together. At this point, it had been almost 24 hours since Leslie's abduction. When Carla recorded with the video camera, he ordered Leslie to praise him, and he fed her lines for her to repeat back to him. He loved the control, but he also wanted validation and worship from his victims. So finally, after almost 24 hours of rape and torture, Paul was done taking pleasure in Leslie's pain, and he left the poor girl bloodied and bruised on the floor. So Leslie called out to Carla, please help me. I'm in so much pain. Can I just go home? Leslie was hoping that Carla would like come to her rescue, like girl to girl, but Carla ignored her cries. Paul explained to his fiance that Leslie saw way too much. And because of this, she should not be allowed to live. He told Carla, I saw her blindfold slip up many times during the acts. She may have seen my face or my car. We have to get rid of her. He just wanted to kill her. So they had no choice. Carla didn't argue with him, but she did suggest that they at least sedate Leslie with sleeping pills so she wouldn't know what, hap- what happened during their trial. So she was like, let's not kill her. Let's just give her a bunch of drugs and she just won't know what happened. But he was like, no, fuck no. So Paul claimed that Carla inserted an air bubble into her bloodstream, which triggered an air embolism. But Carla said in trial that um, Paul strangled Leslie with an electrical cord. Shit. So the next day... That's on the, so violent. Sorry. I know. Like, and it's, it's total so violent. Right. So the next day on their way home from a Father's Day dinner with Carla's parents... The couple stopped at a hardware store to pick up some concrete mix. When they got home, Paul dismembered Leslie's body, hoping to make it easier to dispose of and more difficult to identify. Paul used his grandfather's circular saw to dismember her, and he cut her up into eight different pieces. But Paul ended up keeping the receipts of this purchase, which were damaging during his trial. That night, he cased Leslie's body and like eight blocks of cement and then dumped them into a nearby lake, which is Lake Gibson, for those of you who live there. So this didn't seem to phase Carla or Paul because they were preparing for their wedding approaching and they were happy as can be. But Leslie's parents were worried about their missing daughter at this point. Okay. 
Okay. So on June 29th, the day before the couple's wedding, a man named Michael and his younger son, Michael Jr., went canoeing in Lake uh, uh, Gibson. They were like on a fishing trip. So they came across the concrete blocks that were submerged in mud at the lake's edge. And they were like, well, that's odd. Like, what could it be? And when they looked closer, they noticed that there were like body parts. Oh, my God. So they reported the incident immediately. So an hour later. Wait, wait, wait. Where's the concrete? The concrete's like encasing the the body parts, but like some of it's like sticking out. Oh my god. Remember like the picture of Junko Furuto like that. I'm thinking like that. So hours later, a dozen local police officers arrived to the scene and they fished out the heavy concrete slabs and waited until morning to retrieve what they had missed. So when they returned early the next morning to continue, they found a severed torso floating in the middle of the lake. So uh, Okay, so it wasn't encased. Right. So I think some of it was not. Or some of it like came or out or they do didn't do a right. good job. Yeah. Right. So this stunned the community. So news of this gruesome discovery made a huge wave in Ontario on Ontario. But the discovery of their victim did nothing to derail Paul and Carla of their wants and desires. So, they probably didn't let it set. Right. I'm thinking it was still wet when they threw it in. So meanwhile, Paul and Carla's wedding was going on that day. (sighs) Carla's wedding was extravagant and she, this is just what she wanted and dreamed of. The only mention of Tammy that was allowed there um, was when her father gave a brief toast. Otherwise, Carla wanted all eyes on her and Paul. She wanted no mention of anybody else. So after the wedding, the newlyweds headed to Hawaii for their honeymoon. So investigators finally identified leslie's remains by dental records and determined the cause of her death was like um they weren't able i think it was just like self or no no no, like wounds they weren't able to determine if it was like drugs but they assumed that it was like just a murder and like strangulation oh they could tell because of the i guess right and i think like the cartilage around the neck okay um but i thought maybe he decapitated her right but there was little to nothing like that they else that they heard of so the investigation went cold like they had nothing else to go off of she's 14 so once paul and carla returned back home to canada their relationship changed significantly so carla lost faith in the man of her dreams this made you lose faith (laughs) she said quote i either wanted to be totally away from him or i wanted him to just love me however carla did not want to give up in the marriage she wrote letters to paul telling him quote i want our love back People think we're the perfect couple. We are. We've just gotten so sidetracked that even though we have our problems, I'm still so much in love with you. Unfortunately, Paul didn't give a shit about the fucking letter. So Paul also didn't care if Carla knew that he was going out and about and at this point he was cheating on her. So in fact, if a woman called their house looking for Paul, he told Carla that she needed to pretend to be his sister rather than his wife. Because some women were like, I ain't doing that shit. So according to Carla, this repeated psychological torment changed her. So where she once felt willing to give Paul everything he wanted and needed, she now felt like a growing resentment towards him. But still, she was scared of his verbal and physical abuse and did exactly what she could just to say, stay in the marriage. So in the late spring of 1992, when Paul ordered Carla uh, to help him go on the hunt for another virgin, she felt like she had to comply because she was scared of the horrible punishment that she would face. Oh my God. 
on Thursday, April 16, 1992, 27-year-old Paul and 21-year-old Carla headed out in search of their next victim. Shortly into their drive, as they passed Holy Cross Secondary Church, or school, which is a Catholic high school uh-huh. in the city's north end, they spotted 15-year-old Kristen French walking near Grace Lutheran's church. Paul slowed down the car and stopped, and Carla got out of the vehicle, map in hand, and went up to Kristen to see if she could help them with some directions, claiming that they were lost. Kristen was more than happy to help, but when Carla called her closer to examine a map, Paul snuck around behind the teen, grabbed her, showed her a knife, and said it was in her best interest to comply. So he forced uh, Kristen to get into the car while Carla pulled her hair. So they were like beaten up on this poor girl so Kristen did put up a fight though and she gave Paul and Carla a run for their money but Paul and Carla being much older and stronger were able to overpower her and they forced her into the back seat so once she was secured the couple drove back home with their next victim so Kristen took the same route home every day taking about 15 minutes to get from school to home to Mm -hmm. care for her dog so it was not typical for Kristen to come home like not it was not typical for her to come home at like a different time yeah and her parents at this point were panicking her parents became convinced that she was met with foul play and notified the police right away so within 24 hours the niagara regional police service nrp uh, assembled a team and searched kristen's route route and found several witnesses who had seen the abduction happen from different locations french's or kristen's shoes uh, recovered was recovered from the parking lot where she had been taken. So this let the police know that there had definitely been an abduction in place. Right. So back at their house, Paul subjected Kristen to the same treatment he had shown Leslie. He raped and sodomized the 15-year-old for hours and forced her to drink excessive amounts of alcohol during the ordeal. At one stage, he invited Carla into the room, eager and excited for a threesome. What do you think she's doing? I don't know. I think she's like... Like, he's, like, having his way with both of them. I don't think that she's playing... I don't think she's doing anything to the girls. Well, I mean, she's just, like... Because then he invites her into the room. Oh, you can come in Yeah, you can come in now. It's your turn. So he told them, if you ever want to see your family again, you have to do exactly what you were told. Got it? However, unlike Leslie, Kristen wasn't made to wear a blindfold. So it seems unlikely that they ever really intended for her to leave here alive. Yeah. So after the rape and torture, Carla and Paul continued to play mind games with Kristen. When Kristen's abduction was covered on the nightly news, Paul and Carla made her sit down in front of the (gasps) television and watch as Kristen's father looked into the camera and promised his daughter that they would find her. Horrible. So Paul and Carla kept the young girl in their home for three days, raping and torturing her repeatedly. So after three long days of rape and torture, Paul decided that he was bored of Kristen and it was time for her to go. So in trial, Carla testified that Paul strangled Kristen for seven minutes while she watched. Paul said that Carla beat Kristen with a rubber mallet because she tried to escape and that Kristen was strangled with a noose around her neck, which was secured to like a chest Mm -hmm. or like a drawer. Mm -hmm. Um, He added that after the attack, Carla went to the bedroom and fixed her hair. Were Um, they tried together? Separately. So after the couple was certain that Kristen was dead, Paul and Carla shaved Kristen's head, then bathed her body to remove any DNA from her. 
So this time they decided not to dismember the corpse due to the fact that the first time didn't work out so well. So instead they loaded Kristen's naked body into their car and drove it to the town of Burlington, which was about 20 miles away. They tossed Kristen into a ditch and didn't even try to hide the body. Um, so Kristen's dead, bruised body laid in the ditch for the world to see, and that's exactly how they wanted it. So they wanted people to stumble across her body. Remember, like, whenever your mom would be, like, would be lying in a ditch somewhere. Like, right. that was my mom's thing. Right. Always. Like, you're going to be lying in, in a, a ditch. ditch somewhere. Yeah. Yep, well, this happened to her, poor thing. So at this point, though, Paul felt invincible and on top of the world. So he was able to live out his sick and twisted fantasies and not get caught. So he thought he could outsmart everyone with his good looks and charming personalities. So two weeks after Kristen's abduction, a man searching for scrap metal found the teen's body. This discovery made the evening news anchors eager and reported the case of the missing schoolgirl, and they were like, it was like all hands on deck to find out who fucking did this. So the community was outraged as Kristen was labeled as a loving, sweet, and caring churchgoer, which also made me really mad because when this happened to Leslie, she was known as like a um, rebellious, and the community was not as outraged as they were for this girl because of her background. So this was a churchgoer, and the other girl was a little rebel. Which, like, they both deserve the same amount. Right, and they're teens, and you're figuring out yourself. So, side note, Paul had actually been interviewed by police about the murders, but he was able to talk his way through the questions with ease. So now, with three murders under his belt, Paul thought that there was no chance in fucking hell that the police would connect him to Kristen French. He was like, there ain't no fucking way! So on May 12th, 1992, police approached Paul's house and rang his doorbell. Paul was nervous, but put on a very convincing front. He noticed the detectives looking at photos from his and Kristen's wedding. And he was like, what are you looking at? (laughs) So the couple was so happy, so attractive, so normal looking that there was nothing to suggest like ill intent from either of them. So they looked like Barbie and Ken. Paul thought in his mind, there's no way that these people think that it's me. So that day when the detectives were in his living room, Paul listened as the detectives asked him many questions, wanting to appear truthful. Every time he answered a question, he made sure that he looked the officers directly in the eye. He kept his legs still from shaking and he held his hands together so that they weren't shaking either. So he was giving them no signs that he was worried. So after answering all the questions for an hour, the detectives were done. Paul escorted them out of the house with a huge smile. He was like, fuck yeah, I fooled them. I fooled them. They don't think it's me. So according to Carla, his confidence made her feel hopeless. She almost wanted Paul to be caught so she could be like free Free. of him. So around this time, Carla started to pull away from Paul and she had finally had enough of the abuse and spent as much time apart apart from him as possible. So it's hard to say which was worse when he ignored her with cold indifference or when he berated her for the slightest, like any sort of thing. So eventually she wanted little to do with Paul. So she even slept in the guest bedroom. Carla had made up her mind that it was time to leave. So one night she woke up or she worked up the strength to call her father and asked him to come and pick her up. So nervous, Carla told Paul for her new feelings and let him know that her father was going to be on the way to pick her up. So Paul flew into a rage. He screamed. He yelled at her. And he would even try to bolt the door so that she couldn't come. He was like, I'm going to bolt these doors so you can never come back, like trying to scare her. But she was like, see you later, sucker. I don't give a fuck. 
So despite Paul's crazed and psychotic behavior, this did not change Carla's mind. So she rushed out of this uh, the house as soon as her father arrived she was just ready to get the fuck up out of there and she even left all of her belongings behind she was just ready to be free wow but then she was like well kind of need my clothes back so she decided to go back to paul's house to pick up her belongings but when she got there paul was waiting for her when she entered the home he said like very calmly you need to stay if you leave again i will tell your parents what happened what you did to your sister tammy you killed her So backed in a corner, Carla felt forced to stay. So she lied to her parents, telling them that she and Paul resolved their issues and that everything was fine, when in reality, it was worse than ever. The beatings were more brutal following her return, and it was only a matter of time before things erupted. Can you imagine Thanksgiving with this family? I know. And you're just like, it's just... So on December 27th, 28-year-old Paul... That's my parents' anniversary. Oh, God. Or the 28th. (laughs) Well... I can't remember. (laughs) You have a date for everything. I know. So 28-year-old Paul beat Carla with a flashlight, hitting her in the face over and over again, resulting in blood everywhere. But this was not enough. Paul then tied an electrical cord around her neck and choked her, nearly killing her. So Carla was petrified at what just happened. And she was like, I am not about to be another one of Paul's like murder victims. So she's terrified. She's like, this is only going to get more extensive more extensive but she was so ashamed of people knowing the truth about what she had done well, she, she stayed on it she stayed but when carla showed up at work a week later carla's boss noticed terrible bruising on her face so she let it slide but then upon looking closer she noticed them all over carla's arms and legs like she had bruises and beatings everywhere Fuck. so One of um, Carla's colleagues called her mother, Dorothy, and was like, look, you have to call your daughter. She's beaten. She's bruised. Something's going on. So she drove down and took Carla to the local hospital. She was actually in the hospital for several days, and she was released, and and she moved in with her aunt and uncle to be away from Paul for a little (laughs) bit. Her aunt and uncle? Uncle. Was he hot? Oh, did I say (laughs) uncle? Away from Paul. So she had a... um, So she moved in with... um, her aunt and her uncle. So a month later, on February 9th, 1993, Carla had finally reached her breaking point. She called the police to turn in Paul for murdering Leslie Mahaffey and Kristen French. On February 13th... But not her sister. Not her sister, because she took Was part. involved, yeah. yeah. So on February 13th, she agreed to a plea bargain in exchange That's for Libby's her... birthday. On no, February... Sorry. Enough with that. (laughs) On February 13th, she agreed to a plea bargain in exchange for her testimony against Paul. She would accept a 10-year prison sentence for manslaughter. Four days later, Paul was arrested. Unsurprisingly, he immediately turned to blame his wife. He admitted to his role in the kidnapping and raping of the two girls, but said that it was Carla who killed them in the end. He insisted to police that he always planned on letting them go, but Carla objected, saying that it was too dangerous to let them live and that they might tell on them, which were literally the words that he told Carla. Right. But Paul's credibility was ruined when police DNA against uh, put DNA examples pulled from the rape cases and they matched him perfectly. So the public was outraged and demanded justice. They were out for blood and they were horrified that Carla was given such a light punishment for her roles in the murders. 
Around this time, Carla spent several months at a psychiatric hospital to undergo evaluation. It was there that she finally came clean about her death of her sister, Tammy, in the role mm-hmm. that she played during it. Do you think it's because she thought that she wouldn't get prison time if she was in, like, a mental hospital? Well, it says that... She, so it's possible that Carla told the truth about Tammy because she was worried that if she didn't, Paul would be the first person to tell the truth and was sure to be treated more favorably. If that was her intention, it paid off. So Carla's sentence was extended just by two years for this. So it's also possible that after having receiving psychiatric care, Carla was finally able to confront the horrors of her past. So having lived in an abusive relationship since she was 17, she finally stepped out of those shadows of the shame and the guilt that she felt. Okay. So for his, Paul, uh, for his part, Paul seemed to feel no guilt or remorse for anything that occurred. He was said to plead not guilty to all charges against him, but was defeated when the lawyer turned in the videotapes of the assaults. The tapes revealed to the jury that Paul was every bit as evil as Carla had said he was, though the videotapes also showed that she enjoyed the parts of the acts too, but it was too late. So Carla had immunity and was untouchable um, with no deal to protect him. So she was good. I thought they could lie about their deals. That's what I thought too, but... The last couple of cases we've done, they've kind of held their word. So Paul was found guilty of numerous charges, including the murders of Leslie Mahaffey and Kristen French. He was sentenced to life behind bars and was eligible for parole starting in 2018. But due to the relief of his victims' families, his requests were denied. So that's good. So they were going to let Carla release, but she had to... Um, follow a bunch of rules so she had to tell the police her home address her work address and whoever she lived with she was required to notify police as soon as any of the above changed she was likewise required to notify police of any change to her name if she planned to be away from her home for more than 48 hours she had to give a 72 hours notice could she fly she i don't know that's not in here she could not contact paul or the families of leslie or Kristen french um or the woman that we that I refer to as Jessica in the story. Mm-hmm. She was forbidden to be with people under the age of 16. She was forbidden from consuming drugs other than prescription medicine. She was required to continue therapy and counseling, and she was required to provide sam- uh, police with a DNA uh, sample. I wonder if she had any licenses when she worked in, like, the veterinary place, and if those were, like, was it called rebuked or, like, taken Oh, up? yeah. Like, I wonder I- if they were suspended. Right, well, she probably lost her job. <laughs> Well, I know, but, like, she she was handling, like, yeah. prescriptions, even though they were for animals. Oh, that's true. I don't know. But she did serve her full time, and she was released in 2005. So today she's a free woman. So mm-hmm. Carla, who's now 48, has three children from her second marriage. She was actually in the media. Wait, while it, was she allowed to be around them until they were 16? Well, that's what I'm wondering, because that was part of her roles, and she was actually... Because she did it to her sister, what but, would make her not do it to her kids. But she was actually spot volunteering at a primary school, mm-hmm. and she was pictured outside of Greaves Academy, where her children attended classes, and when people approached her, she tried to shield her face from the reporter uh, reporters and stated, quote, I don't have nothing to say. So, <laughs> not proper English. So, Andy, whose daughter... 
I'm sorry. Whose daughters attended school, told the newspaper he discovered her history after a concerned citizen handled out, like, handed out leaflets explaining who she was and what she had done. They made, like, a program They made a program, like, this is who this lady is, we need to get her the fuck out of here. So Andy, like, grabbed his daughter and was like, he said, quote, I told my daughter, this lady, I don't want you to go near her, please. If she calls out to you, don't go near her, call me, I don't trust this school. Did her husband know what she had done? Oh, yeah, of course. It was public record. Everybody knew. But it was, like, her sweet... Like, she played the victim card. But that sucks for her kids. Right, I know. Because they didn't... But, um, Paul is still, obviously, in prison to this day, as he should be. Ugh. All right, guys, tomorrow we'll have another episode on Thursday. Bye! Rate, review, subscribe. Bye-bye!